This is OTB AM. We had a good guard and the hurling guard, but both of them were the front guards. I know why we call one of them a good guard, because both of them were the very same. But we weren't allowed hurling the good guard and it. In the hurling garden, the sideline was three bands of barbed wire. So like not alone were you just trying to win the ball, you're trying to fight the, the barbed wire as well. And, you know, whether it's two E there or whether it's ten E there, you made a match. Yeah, they were the days, like, but they're they're brilliant and you refereed them fairly yourself in fairness. But you know, there's often fights and games probably <laughs> OTB AM, Ireland's only sports breakfast show, weekdays from 7.30 a.m. only on OTB Sports Radio. Live 24-7 on the GoLoud app. The OTB Podcast Network. OTB Gold. The very best of off the ball. Hello, you're welcome along to OTB Gold. It's Joe Malloy here. OTB Gold being a collection of the very best off the ball interviews from the past 17 years. Today, the brilliant Harry Edwards. This was July 2016. Harry Edwards uh, caught our eye when he appeared on the O.J. Simpson Made in America documentary, which if you haven't seen, by the way, I promise you, even if you're not a documentary person, this is must-watch. It is frankly fantastic. And Harry Edwards was one of the best contributors on that documentary. So in July 2016, he spoke to Jerry Gilroy and they got into a fascinating discussion. O.J. Simpson was the jump-off point, Jesse Owens, the civil rights movement, a really, really brilliant stuff. So here is Dr. Harry Edwards on Off the Ball back in July 2016. Enjoy. OTB Gold. The very best of Off the Ball. Now, every night this week, BT Sport are showing OJ, Made in America. It's a seven and a half hour documentary, ostensibly about OJ Simpson, but really it's about American history and in particular the story of race in America from the civil rights movement in the 1960s all the way to today. It's obviously a particularly relevant study at the moment, given the murders of two black men by police in Baton Rouge in Minnesota and then the subsequent murder of five policemen in Dallas at a march to protest these killings. To talk to us about all this and to put some historical context on the athletes who protest is Dr. Harry Edwards, the Professor Emeritus of Sociology Department of UC Berkeley. Dr. Edwards, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. You've been part of the leadership group of black athletes protesting all the way back to the mid to late 1960s. And with that in mind, I'm wondering, do you feel today's athletes are doing enough to be leaders of their community? Well, I think every generation of athletes finds their own uh, voices, uh, finds their own space uh, in terms of making political and culturally relevant statements. Uh, the United States uh, is a society that is substantially built upon uh, freedom of the speech and mass movements, uh, and uh, the athletes have always been part of that, going back to Jack Johnson uh, and his insistence that uh, he was legitimate enough uh, boxing prospect that he should have a shot at the uh, heavyweight championship at a time when American, uh, white American boxers were absolutely opposed to uh, giving blacks uh, that opportunity. Then, of course, you have Jesse Owens and Joe Lewis and their whole uh, role uh, in terms of um, the uh, 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 Aryan supremacist uh, ideologies and so forth of Germany. Uh, in World War II, uh, right into uh, the 1950s, post-World War two years with uh, Jackie Robinson and uh, Larry Doby and Earl Lloyd and Chuck Cooper in basketball, and of course, Kenny Washington and uh, uh, Woody Strode, uh, Marion Motley and Bill Willis in football, all of whom were 
battling uh, issues not just within the arena, uh, but uh, their struggles had implications beyond the arena. And then in the 1960s, of course, uh, you had uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, the godfather of the movement and struggle in the 1960s waged by athletes. You had Tommy Smith and John Carlos, Bill Russell, Jim Brown, uh, most certainly Kurt Flood, who struck uh, a blow for uh, freedom for professional athletes uh, when he challenged uh, the right of uh, teams to move athletes around without their uh, consent. Uh, so uh, there's a long history of struggle, but the thing that you have to recognize is that every generation of athletes fights those struggles within the context of their own times. Uh, today, uh, you have athletes talking about um, uh, strikes and one thing or another. Some are even, uh, uh, have even floated the notion of a boycott of the 2016 Olympics uh, as a consequence of these killings and so forth. Uh, but uh, their circumstances today are different than the circumstances in the 1960s. We have athletes that are literally walking corporations. And if LeBron James and Steph Curry and Serena Williams uh, and Carmelo Anthony and some of these other great players walked into a mayor's office or a governor's office and said, we want something done about these killings, uh, whether it's the killing of, uh, of, uh, of young black men and women or, and children or whether it's the killing of police officers, uh, there's no way that that governor or that, or that, that mayor tells that uh, group of athletes to get lost. Uh, we couldn't have done that in the 1960s. We didn't have that kind of power. We didn't have that kind of cachet. So uh, every generation fights these struggles within the context of their own uh, uh, times, and uh, I'm, I'm very proud of the way that these athletes uh, uh, today are, are, are comporting themselves and uh, beginning to stand up and speak out. Yeah, Carmelo Anthony just today has written a piece. I, I read it on the Guardian's website. I, I don't know where it was originally published, but the, it finishes with this paragraph. The teams and the support systems around athletes urge them to stay away from politics, stay away from religion, stay away from this, stay away from that. But at certain times, you've just got to put all of that aside and be a human being. That time is now. Yes. Yes, uh, that's a clarion call for athletes to stand up and make a statement. And when you see uh, people such as Maya Moore, uh, who is the MVP of the uh, Women's uh, uh, NBA uh, Professional Basketball League, and her teammates walk on the field, uh, walk onto the court uh, with T-shirts on saying change, uh, you know, has to, has to happen, uh, a, a, a protest against the violence and the killing and the shooting. Uh, that means that athletes uh, are finding their voices. Uh, Carmelo Anthony uh, is absolutely correct. This generation of athletes will make its statement. It doesn't have to necessarily be a repeat of uh, what happened in the past. Uh, it, it very seldom is. I mean, Muhammad Ali was not Joe Lewis. Smith and Carlos was not Jesse Owens. Uh, Bill Russell was not Earl Lloyd or Chuck Cooper or the Harlem Globetrotters. Uh, Jim Brown was not uh, Kenny Washington or Woody Strode. Uh, Kurt Flood most certainly was not Jackie Robinson. Each generation of athletes makes its own statement in its own context, in its own own way, and this generation of athletes will be uh, no exception. I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the um, 1965 to 1969 period and, and the intersection at, at that time of Jesse Owens and OJ Simpson there was a, a part of Jesse Owens career which 
to be honest, I was completely unfamiliar with until watching a documentary a couple of weeks ago, which you were part of, where they're talking about how he actually tries to stop the uh, the 1968 Black Power salute from uh, Tommy Smith and, and John Carlos, which you were heavily involved in, in orchestrating. And around the same time, piecing this all together, you're also in conversations with OJ, trying to convince him to become part of the movement of black athletes who are trying to organise a boycott, trying to just completely realise the power that they have to help the mass movement become even bigger. And it, it struck me that there's just this weird intersection between those two guys and you're at the centre of it. Uh, yes. Uh, um, Jesse Owens um, had a curious history. Uh, people forget uh, that in, uh, uh, ni- in the, from 1966 to 1968, I mean, I was a student of sport and society. I was writing my dissertation at Cornell University on uh, the sociology of sport, which became uh, the uh, first integrated textbook in, in what was then a new sub-discipline. Uh, and um, I had studied Jesse Owens' history, and I found it amazing that in 1936, Jesse Owens was one of the leading black athlete voices uh, pushing for a boycott of the 1936 games as a consequence of what Hitler and the Nazis were doing uh, to minorities inside of Germany. It was only after Avery Brundage went over to Germany and came back with the word that this man Hitler is all right, uh, and what's going on over there is largely uh, being distorted in the American media, that uh, that uh, effort to uh, stage a boycott of those games um, was uh, was crushed. I was also aware, uh, for example, just as another sidebar, of two Korean athletes who did a demonstration on the Olympic podium after uh, winning first and third uh, in the uh, marathon. Uh, two Korean athletes uh, who protested the occupation of the Korean Peninsula by the Japanese. They had to perform under the Japanese flag and resented it. So uh, those uh, one athlete who got first uh, blocked the rising sun flag on his uh, uniform with the oak tree that he was given, and the other athlete who got third uh, bowed his head and kept his hands down to his side as opposed to putting them over his heart when the Japanese national anthem was played. So I was aware of all of that history. So when Jesse Owens uh, was sent in, uh, by the uh, United States Olympic Committee to um, uh, discourage, in point of fact, to threaten uh, athletes uh, who might uh, uh, and do anything uh, demonstrable against racism and discrimination and the killings that were taking place of black people in American society, including the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, um, I found that uh, a curious turn of events for a man who, in 1936, initially was one of the forces trying to organize a boycott, uh, athletes boycott of the 1936 Olympics. And some of the things that he said and was compelled to say were were so contradictory. I mean, one of the things that he said was, uh, if you guys demonstrate or do anything uh, that would tend to be perceived as embarrassing the United States or the United States Olympic team, uh, you won't be able to get a job when you get back home. And I think it was John Carlos who stood up and said, Jesse, what are you talking about? I can't get a job now. (laughs) So, I mean, it was the kind of thing that um, uh, he was um, uh, almost uh, pressed into. And I think that ultimately uh, he regretted it. He wrote a book 
in point of fact, in 1972, uh, titled I Have Changed, uh, where he said something that I had never even uh, stated, which was that in 1970, any black person who is not a militant is either naive or a coward. I mean, that was something stronger than I had ever stated about O.J. Simpson, Jesse Owens, or anybody else. Yeah. So uh, I think that he um, he changed, but uh, there's no question that uh, he played a, uh, a convoluted uh, kind of role in that whole process. Well, because in, in his 1968 book, the, the previous book to that, he'd actually opened it with a quote from you calling him a bootlicking Uncle Tom. So obviously something really massive happened in his life some Damascene conversion, some that the scales fell from his eyes somehow, and he realized that he'd actually been somehow serving completely the wrong thing. Oh, absolutely. And um, let, let me say something as well. Um, you're absolutely right. He opened his book, and point of fact, his autobiography is basically uh, an open challenge to me. Uh, Black Think is an open challenge to me and that youth movement. Uh, and he opens it, as you state, with a quote from me where I stated, Jesse Owens is a boot-licking Uncle Tom. And that is something uh, that I regret to this day, because Jesse Owens was not an Uncle Tom, boot-licking or otherwise. Jesse Owens was afraid. America, in the America that he grew up in and the America that he came of age in, was uh, almost institutionally committed to frightening black people, whether it be through the Ku Klux Klan, the various uh, uh, law enforcement agencies, uh, the institutional structures uh, where black uh, uh, humanity was demeaned and devalued. Uh, America was in the business of frightening black people. And Jesse Owens was afraid. He was afraid for this country. He was afraid for black people. He was afraid for us. And he did not understand that we were not afraid, that we had dispensed with the fear. Uh, And it was a consequence of the experiences that we had. My generation was the generation of Emmett Till. And I remember uh, talking to my father about that uh, lynching of Emmett Till and looking at the pictures of Emmett Till in Life magazine and in Jet magazine, his mutilated and bloated body, and asking my father, what's going to happen to the people who did this? And my father looked at me and said absolutely nothing. My father, in my eyes at that time, when I was 12, 13 years old, was the biggest, strongest man that, in, in my life. I, th- I thought that there was nothing that he could not do. Uh, he was six, three and a half, two 235 pounds with a 34-inch waist. He was a sprinter. He could run. Uh, you know, he had done time in state prison. I thought he was the biggest, baddest, toughest man in the world. And for the first time, when we were discussing him at Till, I saw something in his eyes that I had never seen before, and that was fear. And that was the same thing that I saw in Jesse Owens. Uh, Jesse Owens was afraid. He was afraid for us. He did not understand that we had dispensed with fear. Uh, the Emmett Till experience, we watched as four little girls were bombed in a church. We watched as Mega Evers was shot in the back. We, uh, I was doing my master's thesis on the black Muslim family at Cornell in 1964, the summer and fall of 1964. 
uh, and I was working with some of Malcolm X's congregation in New York City. In February of 1965, while I was actually doing that research, Malcolm X was assassinated. Uh, Martin Luther King, I met with him on January 17, 1968. Uh, in April of 1968, he was assassinated. We were supposed to meet again on April 28th of 1968. He didn't make it. Uh, I uh, was also working with students at San Jose State to make placards in preparation for Bobby Kennedy coming to Northern California. He was speaking in Southern California. He didn't make it. He was shot and killed in Southern California, never made it to the rallies and so forth that we had planned for Northern California. But then my 21st birthday was November the 22nd, 1963. And so I had a whole uh, uh, cultural and personal memory uh, and involvement uh, with these murders and with this violence. And so we had, me and my generation had dispensed with fear, and that was something that Jesse Owens simply did not understand, could not comprehend. Uh, while our white uh, radical peers were talking about don't trust anybody over 30, People like me and H. Rap Brown and Stokely Carmichael and Huey Newton and Bobby Seale and Eldridge Cleaver and Angela Davis and so forth, we didn't expect to live to be 30. So we dispensed with fear, which made us the freest people in the world to speak our mind and to do what we felt had to be done. Jesse Owens had a difficult time uh, dealing with that. And he, he was not an Uncle Tom. He was afraid, and he was afraid in part for us, and if you read between the lines in his autobiography, Black Think, as much as he castigates me, uh, in the open letter to a young Negro, that a chapter of that book that he writes to me, uh, it becomes very, very clear that he wasn't an Uncle Tom. He was afraid in the same sense that my father was afraid for me, himself, and for black people in this country. And something changes in the two years where he says he was completely wrong and and he, he becomes a, a woke a woken person. And do you feel that you had influence in that? Because it's around this time that you start to realise the power of the athletes. It's around this time that you you get to set up the movement that calls for the boycott of the nineteen sixty eight Olympic Games, which ultimately doesn't happen, but it does lead to something maybe even better, which is this iconic moment in sports history where two athletes, first and third on the podium, raise their fist in the Black Power salute and they get sent home. And, and so maybe, you know, it becomes a much bigger story than if they hadn't been there in the first place. Oh, absolutely. But but look, um, again, you know, I was an Ivy League PhD student writing my dissertation, uh, even during my activist years and my time with the Black Panther Party and organizing the Olympic Project for Human Rights. I knew the history of sports. I was aware of the two Korean athletes. I was aware of Jesse Owens' history prior to him going to the 1936 Olympic Games. I was also aware that we were not going to get a unified, uniform uh, uh, boycott by blacks of the 1968 Games. I mean, O.J. Simpson taught me that much in my conversations with him. He did not want to exchange white racism for black orthodoxy, black power, or any other form of ideological orthodoxy that might have been on the scene at that time. O.J. Simpson wanted to be judged completely 
by the content of his character and the caliber of his competence. He did not feel any more obligation to step up and stand up for black people, despite the fact that he was standing on the shoulders of those who had sacrificed before him. He felt he should have no more obligation to stand up for black people than Larry Bird should have to stand up for poor whites in Appalachia and French Lick, Indiana. He just didn't feel that obligation. And so automatically I knew that that was a parallel path, a parallel universe of black commitment that was moving right alongside the new militancy among athletes. So I never expected that we would have a unified, uniform boycott of the games. I, I knew that the historically black institutions, which is still where at that time many of the great black athletes, the Ralph Bostons, the Bob Beemans, and others, the uh, Jim Hines out of Texas Southern, uh, those black schools were where many of these athletes came from, and there were uh, coaches and people in those institutions who made it very clear. Any athlete who even advocated, much less participated, in any Olympic Project for Human Rights uh, activities would be um, uh, uh, dismissed from school, not just from the Olympic team, but from school, because there was no way that these schools could go to these white legislators upon whom they were dependent for their funding and explain how athletes coming out of those programs at those schools were advocating a boycott of the 1968 Olympic Games. And so we knew that we were not going to have the athletes from the historically black schools, which were who were most of the athletes participating in the games on behalf of the United States. We also knew that there were athletes like Charlie Green and Mel Tinder who were in the military and who were literally participating and preparing for the Olympic Games under orders. Mm. They were not going to uh, boycott the games. So from the outset, I was aware of the history of the games. I was aware of the demonstrations that took place at the, on the podium at the games. I was aware that Avery Brundage, who was head of the United States Olympic Committee uh, in 1936, had removed Jews from the American track team and replaced them with Ralph Metcalf and uh, Jesse Owens because he was afraid not of offending the sensibilities of Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler had ceased to participate, uh, to, to attend the games uh, by the time the relays were run. He had removed them because he was afraid that they would stage some demonstration on the podium uh, during the 1936 Olympic Games. I was aware of all of that history. So in pushing for a boycott, what I did was to create a universe of thought that enabled us to uh, move forward with other options and also provided some cover for those athletes who were simply trying to make the team with some pro prospect of demonstrating once they got there, as had been the case in 1936. And so uh, when... Uh, People were saying after all of the athletes had qualified and were on the plane on the way to Mexico City and so forth, well, Dr. Edwards, are you calling off the boycott? Is the boycott over? I made the statement straight out. There are many, many ways to boycott. No, I am not calling the movement off. I am not calling the boycott off because I understood the prospects for other things developing uh, because they had already developed 
at the 1936 games, even though they were not noted, they were mostly forgotten history, but that reality was there. And so I think that Jesse Owens, looking back over his own history and understanding some of my writings and what happened in 1968, had a change of heart in terms of his whole disposition toward that movement. I think also Jesse Owens' children and grandchildren made it clear that he had to take another look at the stance that he had taken relative to the black athletes in 1968. A change of heart which restores his place in American black sports history as a hero, I suspect, in a way that there will never be a rehabilitation for O.J. Simpson. Is that fair? Well, uh, Jesse Owens doesn't need to have his position restored. Jesse Owens uh, was a victim of the system that we were fighting against. We understood that um, in our uh, rhetoric and the urgency that we felt uh, of the moment in our uh, anticipation that perhaps we would not be around to make other statements, uh, given the rates at which uh, black militant youth in this country was under attack in the late 1960s, uh, the murder of Mark Clark uh, and Fred Hampton, the shootings of Black Panthers across the country, uh, the fact that over 3,000 black Americans lost their lives from 1954 when Brown versus Board of Education, Topeka, Kansas, uh, edicts came out of the Supreme Court integrating uh, schools and uh, removing separate but equal as the law of the land, up through the assassination of Dr. King, over 3,000 black people lost their lives in this country. We didn't expect to be around to make uh, corrective assessments and statements later. So our rhetoric soared, our uh, condemnation of those who confronted and opposed what we knew uh, to be the truth uh, soared. And so, uh, but Jesse Owens didn't, doesn't need to be rehabilitated in terms of his place in the pantheon of great American uh, athletes. Uh, that situation was safe. What he has done is pretty much the same thing that Muhammad Ali did, uh, change course and say, uh, this is where we should be headed. And I was wrong. That in and of itself uh, is, uh, is commendable. O.J. Simpson has never been about anything but O.J. Simpson. And uh, now that he's in the straits that he's in, that's what he has to fall back on. Unfortunately, there was never anything there of uh, commendable substance. Uh, and and that's what he's uh, that's what he's left with. I do not put O.J. Simpson uh, in the same uh, category as uh, Jesse Owens. I do not put O.J. Simpson in the same category as Jim Brown or of any of the other great athletes who, even when they were not totally correct, uh, they were trying to do and say something of substance. Uh, beyond uh, the box scores uh, and what their athletic prowess brought to them in terms of uh, financial and other rewards. The the conversation that you had with OJ trying to recruit him to be part of the movement, was that a straightforward conversation? Did he entertain it at any point? Did he think about, actually, you know what, maybe there is something here for me? Or was it straight out, 
I'm 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 not interested. I'm just I'm not black. I'm OJ was the quote that everybody keeps going yeah, back to. Yeah, uh, it, it was straight up. It was straightforward. But I was not the first one to try to have this conversation with OJ. Jim Brown tried to have that conversation with OJ. OJ was the biggest collegiate sports name in the country for two years. Uh, his two years at USC were stellar. Uh, here you had a handsome, articulate profoundly gifted uh, athlete, black athlete, who had absolutely no consciousness in terms of any broader obligation, even as Dr. Martin Luther King was shot down, even as black people were being washed down the street with fire hoses like basketballs, uh, even as uh, dogs were being sicked, sicked on grandmamas and eight-year-old girls who uh, were out marching uh, in support of the right of African Americans to vote. O.J. Simpson had absolutely nothing to say about that because he feared it would somehow impact his endorsement and monetary um, options. And uh, that was the path that he consciously chose. I wasn't the only one to approach O.J. Simpson. Jim Brown, a number of other people approached O.J. Simpson. And he made it very, very clear that he was not black. I'm O.J. I don't identify with being black. I'm O.J. And that is a marketable brand. And that is what I am seeking to protect. And that's fine. That's good. I mean, I can understand a person making that choice. And O.J. was straight up and honest about it. Uh, And I don't hold that against him. But don't then turn around and play the race card uh, when you're caught up in a double murder. uh, And now all of a sudden you're going to become a victim of your blackness and being black in America. I mean, I don't want to hear that. I mean, that's uh, uh, worse than um, uh, contradictory. Um, uh, that's uh, duplicitous to the point of um, almost being evil. What's the fallout from the O.J. Simpson trial? Because watching the documentary over the last week, it's, it's just airing at the moment here in Ireland, you know, you can't but be struck that... It seems like there are a lot of lessons to be learned. I'm just not quite sure if I can grasp that anything specific has changed from the 1950s, the 1960s to last week. Nothing. A great deal has changed. What is in question is how much progress has been made. You can't look at an African-American family in the White House and say that nothing has changed. Uh, You can't look at the numbers of black elected officials in America and say that nothing has changed. You can't look at a black police chief that is honored and loved and respected in Dallas, Texas, and say that nothing has changed. What is in question is how much progress has been made. And what the O.J. Simpson trial brought to the surface was the tremendous divisions and so forth that persist in American society. Uh, because we have failed to deal with what uh, is America's original sin. Uh, there's this uh, silly notion in America that it's that the America that the American original 
original sin was slavery. That's ridiculous because slavery came about as a consequence of what the real original sin was, which was a virulent, violent, deep-rooted white supremacy that still persists in American society. This is an issue that we have simply been unwilling to talk about uh, in an honest, straightforward fashion. White supremacy is still the preeminent cultural strain of uh, identity uh, and power in American society. O.J. Simpson's trial brought that out. Uh, It wasn't that black people believed that um, O.J. Simpson was not guilty in the same sense that they did not that they did not believe that the police uh, who murdered Mike Brown uh, were not guilty or the guy that killed Trayvon Martin was not guilty, but they all walked. And in many instances, black people looked at the O.J. Simpson situation and said, this is one for our side. Uh, And O.J. walked uh, instead of being found guilty. So when we look at the issue of the O.J. Simpson trial, it comes down to one question. What constitutes progress? in terms of this issue of race in American society. And for better and for worse, progress is one of those concepts that's a lot like profit. At some point, it comes down to who's keeping the books. And we had gotten to the place in American society that a lot of white America used O.J. Simpson as the measure of how much progress we had made in the area of race relations. He had endorsements, he had fame, he had fortune, he had recognition, and the only thing that they asked of O.J. Simpson was that he leave his blackness, his black culture, his black identity behind. Do not walk into the room with that, and we will give you riches beyond your greatest dreams which is what they did until those two white corpses showed up on the doorstep of his wife's condo, his ex-wife's condo. And so uh, O.J. Simpson opened up that whole discussion of race and how much progress had actually been made. And in point of fact, how we define progress, African-American family in the White House opened up those same kinds of questions. Uh, America today is as divided as it ever was because we have not dealt with the central contradiction of American life going back to the time that black people were defined as three-fifths of a human being in this society. And that question is the question of white supremacy. It's a question that um, I can't see being answered anytime soon either. No, it's not going to be answered finally anytime soon. Uh, It may never be answered finally because America is always and always has been a work in progress. And it's going to come down to we the people, what we the people down here on the ground 
decide to do. That's the message that came out of Dallas this week. It, the United States Constitution be, begins with the line, we the people in order to form a more perfect union. It doesn't say we the presidents or we the governors or we the courts or we the law enforcement uh, establishment uh, or we the nonprofits or corporations. It says we the people. And that is an ongoing stru- uh, struggle in American society. The challenges that we face in terms of achieving that more perfect union are dynamic and diverse. The struggle to bring about that achievement, therefore, is multifaceted and perpetual, and there are no final victories. We may never arrive at that shining city on the hill that America promises. We may never achieve a perfect union, but we can always struggle toward achieving that more perfect union. And so the idea that somehow we're going to arrive at a post-racial America is nonsense. The idea that somehow we're going to arrive at a point where in this diverse society of immigrants, natives, and ex-slaves, we're going to somehow eliminate all problems of diversity is a pipe dream. But what is important is that the struggle continues. And I think that at its foundation, that is what America is about. That is what America offers the rest of the world, that despite our imperfections, look at what we have been able to achieve together, and most importantly, that struggle continues. Well, Dr. Edwards, you've certainly done your bit for the struggle. Thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with us here in Ireland this evening, and thanks so much for making so much time for us. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, and I hope that uh, it's been worth your time. OTB Gold. The very best of Off the Ball. That was an OTB Podcast Network presentation.